0: You know, we have landowners that are fairly new. We have landowners that have been here for a very long time. All of them bring different perspectives to the table and different experiences with one, one particular landowner saying, you know, that's it. Grandfather said we should never try to control the river, and here we are trying to do this. But it really is about meeting those folks. All of those help influence decisions that are made. When I first came on and looking at stream bank projects, I had a different view because I'm learning with them every day as well. So learning together.
1: Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana Gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges, successes, and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the Life in the Land films in their entirety, and I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Today we're speaking with Mike Ruggles, who is the Region 5 Supervisor for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Mike was formerly the Region 5 fisheries biologist and fisheries manager, and regularly in the field on issues and projects with the Musselshell River. The Musselshell River flows for about 350 miles in central Montana, from just east of White Sulphur Springs, heading east then north to the Fort Peck Reservoir, where it joins the Missouri River. The majority of land along the river and its tributaries supports agriculture, and like many places in the west, Water and water rights were historically a contentious issue in the Musselshell watershed. Water users in different stretches of the river did not communicate with one another, and water quality and quantity was an ongoing issue. The Musselshell Watershed Coalition officially formed in 2009 and brings together four water user groups, several conservation districts, state and federal agencies, and local residents across five counties. Together, the coalition ensures that all voices come to the table to maintain a healthy watershed for all of the diverse life that depends on it. The formation of the coalition prompted everyone to look at their river more holistically. And while the physical work on the ground has been significant, everything from stream restoration to better coordinated water distribution, one of the biggest impacts that the coalition has created is perhaps not quite measurable. It is quite simply the connections that is is created and the lines of communication that have been opened up from folks in the upper river to the middle to the lower stretches of the river who never previously communicated and often sometimes were feuding. Now there's open lines of dialogue about different issues, ways that people can help each other, folks learning how to learn together and genuinely listen to each other's needs. That circle of communication and connection that the coalition has created has opened the doors for a lot of great projects to happen. I urge you to check out the Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition site, which is linked in this episode's show notes to see just how impressive the work of this coalition is. You can also hear perspectives from two other folks that are involved in the coalition's work in two separate episodes, both with rancher Laura Nolan and rancher Bill Milton. Mike Ruggles was very actively involved with the Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition, working directly with residents, primarily ranchers, other agencies and entities to create projects that led to the best outcomes for the fish and wildlife as well as the human communities. Mike will speak with us about the significance of creating relationships with folks on the ground and having them help guide the work, the value in honest dialogue, and the need to break habits of making assumptions about different sectors or demographics of people who work within the landscapes. He has great insight for folks working both in government agency, as well as for landowners. Associate producer Cassie Heron and I spoke with Mike on the banks of the Musselshell River last August in 2021, just outside of the town of Roundup. It was the end of a hot, dry, smoky summer, and the river was low, but still flowing, Rain was sprinkling off and on as we spoke, a sensation that had become somewhat foreign in this dry summer in Montana. Mike begins by telling us about the Musselshell River, both the biodiversity and the people that live and depend on this river.
0: Uh, the Musselshell Shell is uh, just a really cool drainage, uh, often overlooked, it's definitely a working river. There's a few things that have changed over time with some management, definitely been some changes in water management and water struggles. Uh, which is part of what makes this unique is you have the landscape that's working the river that's working recent changes in how folks were managing that water makes it so that there's potential to do even more things uh, and try to bring the river back to what it used to be or or some other function similar to that so the mussel shell as an ecosystem is uh, there's very few places that are like this uh, there's certainly lots of places that have lots of challenges as does the mussel shell There's uh, pushing 18 different fish species, many different bug species, you know, a couple different turtle species, you know, native turtles that have been here. One of the things that's a little different than most of the the tributaries to large rivers is, this one, it does have a lot of diversions on it. Many of those are lower than, uh, you know, they still allow some passage. So to share some of that story, the first 120 miles is an open river, which is really unusual most of these rivers that are in the prairie have a diversion dam or other structure that blocks the river very close to the main stem so we've maintained some pretty good connection for that first 120 miles largely intact for the species including sauger which is one of our species of concern Um, this last year collected some anglers have said that they're out there um, not in the same abundance that they were detected in the 70s uh, but still present where if we were to look at several other drainages uh, here they're not present because they've had diversions in those close areas. Uh, the Powder River is one that doesn't have any major diversions. And uh, it probably is a little bit better off than this one. Um, in North Dakota, it's the little Missouri. And so, you know, if you start looking at the map and see all these little blue lines, this one's pretty dang healthy. Once we get up into the middle river, we do have some of those blockages, which that's what we're trying to work on to open. Also looking at floodplain connectivity. With the railroad and the, the highway coming in, You know, miles and miles have been cut off. Um, So we're working at how can we recapture some of that length and maintain some of that habitat. I mean, just looking at this little spot we're in, I would expect if we waited long enough, we'd see a spiny softshell turtle. Um, And for instance, below Fort Peck on the Missouri River, they're basically gone, Um, 120 some miles. Not not there anymore where they used to be, add in another 120 miles of the reservoir. Well, here, even as dry as it's gotten, this is one of the best spiny softshell populations that we have. We still have a nice prairie fish assemblage all the way up, um, getting close to the dead man's diversion, and then we transition into cold water and still have some really cool species that are there historically as well. So despite the droughts, there's still really cool uh, assemblages here. So lots and lots of potential. So the people that live here, a wide range of folks, uh, a lot of them on the land, ranchers, farmers. There's also the hired hands that are there, mining communities, the history of mining that's here. Uh, the folks that are living here you know supporting those folks um, so it really is this rural environment uh, just really good folks to work with hard-working folks uh, that really appreciate the land and know their backyards well so i uh, came to the Mussel shell uh, in 2009 as a fisheries biologist i had a decent understanding of the biology of what's been done in the past what was there I had not worked with a lot of the landowners yet at that time 2010 still getting my feet underneath and then 2011 the flood came in a historic flood really kind of ripped through the valley and let folks know that uh, this was a a much different river than they'd seen for the previous 30 40 years and for some of them the first time they'd ever experienced how big that this little thing could become Um, so that allowed me to meet a lot of the landowners and a lot of the landowners that were looking for what can we do how can we manage this and the range was everywhere from we just need to get away from it to, you know, we need to get down there and really manage this. And so that really was the introduction into the group on a much different level than than where I had been previous to that. I asked Mike what he observed when members of the coalition were first coming
1: together and the unique elements of folks who weren't used to working together coming to the table to work things out.
0: Kind of the unique thing with the Muscle Shell Water Coalition is... Uh, you had interested folks in how it was working and looking how they could help their neighbors, uh, the other folks that, that were living in the valley, and what could be done collectively rather than each individual tries to figure out how it goes. So maybe there's some lessons that we can take and, and learn from what's happened in the past, learn with where we might be going and are there some different alternatives that haven't been fully explored. And so having that organization there really helped start having those conversations, which ultimately led to, to many different projects that I was involved with. Uh, you know, for instance, the abandonment of the a, Eggy Diversion, where we went back in and refilled that channel and recaptured that, to uh, recapturing a channel and another avulsion downstream, uh, working with the Roundup Reach, where we're reducing uh, flood elevation by opening up the floodplain, and uh, many other projects that, that are out there on the landscape. And so they, they really did provide that opportunity to have that more robust community conversation.
1: Like many rivers around the world, The Musselshell River has been dramatically changed from its natural flow and character in the past 150 years due to channelization or altering of the river's natural flow to form a straight channel to accommodate for highway, railroad, and mining infrastructure. A great deal of the coalition's work has been projects such as taking out or modifying dams for fish passage and efforts to restore the river's natural floodplain, This restoration reduces erosion which benefits fish habitat and water quality. It slows the flows of the river to allow for more water to seep into the ground and replenish aquifers. It also reduces flood impacts and benefits the overall health of the river's ecosystem.
0: So the role that I brought in uh, was really the technical piece. I understood what species are here. Um, what could be done to make it better for those species, Uh, asking the questions, what species do you guys wanna see in the river? What do you want the river to look like? Uh, And for them coming back and asking some of those questions, the harder part is the community piece, which is what the coalition has taken on. So for me, be able to step in and have the guidance of some of those leaders and uh, see how they were working uh, really influenced the way that I would start working with the the folks, um, which I think really led to a lot of those successes. Had I been there without, I still would have had that technical expertise but maybe not the same skill set to be able to visit with those folks that that they help bring to the table and really have those conversations, both the coalition and the conservation districts, and so and then the landowners themselves. So at uh, one of the meetings, you know, they asked, you know, what my vision was of the river uh, and what I wanted to see out of it. And honestly, the river was only in a shape where we could have that conversation because of the hard work that they had put in for where's water going and who's getting it and when are they getting it, following those water rules. Um, and I said, really, at this point, the river has been so modified from its historic, it's really up to you folks. How do you want it to look? What do you want it to look like? I shared with them that there's opportunity, demonstrated that there are fish growing that you know, would surprise them, that there's other things happening in the river that might surprise them, shared that, uh, that technical piece with them. And uh, you know the interest was there. Hey, we have the opportunity actually, rather than somebody coming in and saying, this is how we want it to look, that was a fun conversation, and uh, honestly, that's that's where it's at. That's how things get done, and and uh, it doesn't work for me to come charging in and saying let's let's head this direction. And so it was it was neat to see that and be a part of that and, and experience that. That's just kind of who I am and how that works too. So,
1: and with that is relationship building and trust building and time, right? right. Um, can you you tell me about that? Yep.
0: So one of the, the neat things, you know, we have landowners that are fairly new. We have landowners that have been here for a very long time. All of them bring different perspectives to the table and different experiences. And learning from one neighbor to the next and being able to share their story and them having a better understanding of where we were at um, really led to uh, some of these projects with one, one particular landowner saying, you know, that's it. Grandfather said we should never try to control the river and here we are trying to do this you know, this diversion dam is, this isn't the first time that it's been blown out and they've had to try to fix it. And so, you know, there's got to be a better way. And uh, a landowner that was younger landowner there jumped in, thought the same. Those relationships, building that way, those successes lead to the next one going, well, maybe at my place, how does that look if we open up passage here? What does that look like? And so we got to explore. We've certainly had some where we've worked on and we're not where we would hope to have been. But there will come a time, and if it's right, it'll still happen, and if not, there's plenty of work to do, too. So, But it really is about meeting those folks, and all of them are unique. All of them have, you know, they were here in the 60s, 50s, they remember stories from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and all of those help influence uh, decisions that are made. When I first came on and looking at stream bank projects, I had a different view prior to 2011, and even after 2014 to what I have, because I'm learning with them every day as well. So learning together.
1: I asked Mike about realistic challenges in this work, not just with collaboration, but with agency work in general and things such as turnover of positions.
0: Yep, there are challenges, there are turnovers, you know, that's uh, even with me and my position. Um, I went to the fish manager and now the regional supervisor, so I'm not having the same type of contact. You know, I'm encouraging my replacement to to come back in and build those same relationships you know they obviously have a different personality than i do uh, they're different place in their career when they've started doing really well they also you know we've had some turnover within the coalition um, so they get to kind of meet but that's good it brings in new ideas uh, new thoughts uh, maybe different perspectives and so those really good projects still rise to the top it is a lot of work um, and there are times when it doesn't end up where you want it to be doesn't mean that you didn't have uh, there wasn't development in those relationships, and that the conversation down the road might be a different conversation. Um, so at least it's still there, and uh, everybody's respectful, and that's one nice thing about the coalition here. It's, it's okay to talk about those topics that maybe in other places are, are less, folks are less willing to visit about. And so that, that is one of the values of having some of those locals help lead that. So.
1: Mike speaks to the pressures that spurred the formation of the coalition and what he has seen in the past decade of working on this river since the formation of the coalition.
0: So uh, the reason why this started was uh, you know, the river was being dried up during the last couple droughts. Uh, and there were folks that weren't getting the water that they were supposed to get according to the water law. Um, so they, they meet, pull together the group. My predecessor was there. Um, and they end up with a, yep, let's get together and, and let's work through this. So what I've seen is even in the last drought, there was more water flowing than there was before. There's pictures of beaver walking up dry channels from the previous drought to that one. Um, There's landowners that talked about this is how the river used to be. And and so it's pretty amazing that uh, we've had those species persist either in pools or the tributaries in enough numbers to be able to recolonize uh, and to take off. And so the, the 2011 definitely straightened it out and made it a bit faster. Um, it was historically a much slower river, so there's probably some challenges that way that are in there. Um, the one thing that's encouraging though is finding that those Sauger are still down in the lower river. I'm um, finding that there's still flathead chubs and catfish up. Um, we're hoping to see some change with the projects that we've done up above, um, that we've connected more river and we see a population of catfish reestablish up there. Um, as you said, you know, 10 years is a relatively short time. You know, that's That's maybe a third to a half of a catfish's lifespan and only a few spawns. So it does take time to be able to see all those differences and changes. Um, One of the last projects we worked on was the McCleary Channel, where we reestablished one and a half miles of river. If you were to just go out into the open prairie and say, we're gonna make a mile and a half a river, it would be millions of dollars to do that. Um, We were able to do this one for less than $200,000. We have this mile and a half that's gonna be recolonized with all these other fish. Uh, and so if we can start to do more of that on the landscape, plus having the the uh, floodplain open back up, I think we'll start to see encouraging results. And, so, and just knowing that catfish weren't present here uh, back in uh, the late 1970s, 1980s up this far, even though they were moving from the Missouri all the way up to uh, near the town of Musselshell, um, that high water let those fish move up here and show that, yep, we can do this up here. And so just working on that. So lots of, lots of things that have potential and but it will take decades to really see the, the payoff of the work that we're doing now, so.
1: For sure. And let's talk about the access. Um, kind of what's unique about that with FWP leading it and what brought you guys to start that project?
0: Yeah. So there's uh, very few access points, uh, public access points in the sense that you see in other rivers or other lakes. Um, and so here on the Mussel Shell, there's a BLM access point, the county fairgrounds and the county uh, campground, which we're standing at. Uh, but upstream through the county buyout uh, through their program uh, they were able to acquire land and thought you know we could partner with fish wildlife and parks for a potential access site. The neat part of that is even if you don't fish you'll be able to float from there down to this area and be able to take out all with legal access. Um, Add in that the other projects that were done um, in the middle of this the Bear Collins mine project the city properties that are there the upper end of the fairgrounds you know a great asset to the community to be able to have a place where, you know, folks can go out and recreate. Um, we recognize that it's not the best fishery at this point, but we're working on how can we make that better in the future. There's still some good catfish, smallmouth bass, um, and then there are folks that like to chase carp and some of the other fish too. So, so there is opportunity, and it's right next to Roundup. Um, so here's a community that hasn't had a lot of uh, ability to get out easily to some of these places, and here it is uh, working on that through that relationship with the county, the Shell Water Coalition, you know, the other folks that are out there as well. And so it's a neat opportunity to have this. There's other folks that are interested in working with us and and, uh, maybe other opportunities down the road.
1: Mike also references the Bear Collins Mine Project, which you can hear more about in the podcast episode with Bill Milton. But Roundup is and was for the past at least 100 years a town built heavily upon coal mining. One of the area mines was the Bear Collins Mine, which operated directly on the banks of the Musselshell River, and which, when it closed its doors in the 1950s, left waste in and on the ground, which was toxic. The mine had also channelized this section of the river for its operations, and this channelization exacerbated flooding here. The Montana Department of Environmental Quality's Abandoned Mine Lands Program, or AML, worked with local partners, including the Musselshell Watershed Coalition, to clean up waste from the Bear Collins mine site and to restore the contour and vegetation of the floodplain. The AML program is funded through a grant from the Department of Interior's Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement, and so there's no charge to the county for AML restoration completed at this site. Several partners are now working to create a network of recreation trails directly connecting community members to this river, which complements the river access sites that the FWP is leading. On the phone, you had mentioned something that really gets in our way are these stereotypes that we create with folks. You know, just on this theme of how we can improve the ability to work with one another, work with the landscapes, that we get really cool things done when that happens, um, just the importance of that and, and how that, you've seen the success in that happening. Yeah.
0: You know, so uh, folks make a lot of assumptions about who they're working with and where they are and their expectations. And typically those assumptions are wrong, but still guide a lot of our actions as we go there. Um, what I found here in the mussel shell is if you go out and meet with the folks, you know, we, we have folks that belong to different colonies that we work with that people have assumptions that, uh, yeah, that's just not gonna work there and that's not the case. We have traditional landowners that are out here that you think, nope, they're not interested in what's in their backyard other than the fields. That's not the case. They all have this very intimate relationship with what's out there. They remember it as kids before they had to spend every day in the field and they're hoping for that for their grandkids and their children. Um, So it really, there are folks that come in here and start to learn to appreciate they might be here for a different species or to do different things with their farm or do the same thing and then find out what's happening here. And it's been fun to watch, you know, some of those those folks as they learn and become part of this coalition and and uh, part of the group or at least uh, have been willing to listen. And even within ranchers, there's rarely consensus on how things should be done and so it's always good to go in open and and there's a lot that you can learn from each one of those experiences and those different folks and so that that really is as as much as folks probably think that the mussel shell is made up of one type of of community, it's it's not. There are there's a lot of different folks, and you know there's there's folks that we have met out here fishing that have tremendous knowledge about what's happening. Years of data collection that it would have taken us that within a 15-minute conversation, you have a good understanding of what's what it's looked like. And others that talk about uh, different species being here when their kids not present now, and trying to you know kind of figure out what happened with those. And so you just you just never know it, and it's it's worth taking that time to get to know folks and drop that, that veil of making assumptions and, and go from there. And likewise, they have a lot of assumptions when FWP shows up, they've already made up their mind. This, so it's, it's nice to be on the other side of that where, oh, well, you aren't that. Sometimes we are, a lot of times we're not. So it, it's a two-way street on that, so.
1: Tell me about the importance of having these landscapes be the working landscapes, that embedded knowledge that folks who've been here and are working on landscape have that if that were lost, what that would mean for the greater habitat that we see here.
0: So uh, keeping the working folks on the landscape, you know, there are developments that could occur, changes to the river that could occur that could be detrimental um, to the vision that I might have and some of the others have. Uh, At the same time, it might meet their needs. And so it's nice to have this community that's out here um, that does understand the river and is part of the river and part of that history. Really, if we start looking at what other places are like this in the Great Plains, there just aren't a lot. Um, and part of that is the history, part of that's the water. You know, all those things kind of come together. Why, why isn't there a diversion in the lower 120 miles? Why are there so many up through here? Do we really need those all? Are the new technologies there? Um, so, you know, without having those people that have a good long-term understanding and then as folks new come in, get to appreciate from their neighbors, plus hearing it from some of us, think really does lead to this opportunity. You, you think about uh, if there were no fish and no bugs in here, it might be a little bit different. It might be that there's more mosquitoes. It might be that there's less bats. It might be, you know, all provides lift to that ecosystem. A lot of times we don't understand all those pieces and parts. And, and so it is neat to, to come here and know that within this kind of nice, if you look around the cottonwoods, there's several different generations of cottonwoods that speak to it's an open floodplain, largely which is not like a lot of places and and so while we take it for granted if you were to step out of this basin and look at the challenges in others while still challenging this one's got a great foundation and great people working in it to I think maintain a better future for it than what it might be so.
1: We finished by asking Mike his perspective on the value of connecting people to their local environments. It's something that shouldn't be taken for granted in a place like Montana, where many assume that everyone who resides here has a connection to their local landscapes and rivers. Often it comes down to access, that even having the gas money or time to get to a place with access is not possible for everyone, which is why the river access sites that Mike mentions is key, being so close to town so that some of those barriers are removed. But also just in general, this need to connect people to their own backyards, the health of the land and water there, and how that connection directly impacts whether or not the health of
0: those spaces continues. You know, the, the idea that uh, folks, if they have access to it and uh, they can learn to love it, is true. Having people be able to come down to the river and see it and enjoy it um, really does lead to more community, more support. Um, not without its challenges, there are some folks that not overly interested in having those new challenges brought on by other folks. At the same time, there are other folks that will love and help and support that. Um, so if this works, you know maybe we look at the next stretch and from down here, where can we build on that f- for people to come in? You know, If you wanna get away from all the sounds of you know, our current world to drop in on an inner tube or a kayak here on the muscle shell and drop below the banks, you're pretty much gone and on your own. And, and you see all the birds, and you know, here this is a beautiful evening, just had a nice little rain shower. You bring folks down. Um, places where I've been um, in communities, so Billings is where I'm at now, and we're next to Lake Elmo, and I often will walk around and just do a quick visit with folks, what brings you here, what do you, you know, um, They might be having physical and mental struggles, and this is a place where they come to, to just kind of break away and, and get away from those and kind of retreat and still kind of heal from that. Um, There are folks that just want to get out there and see the water and dig around like I was and what's under every rock and where's all at, and you know maybe they end up as being a biologist or somebody that's interested in this. There are other folks that come down here and you know I look at this and what could I do as an engineer and what did the beavers do and how did they build this and where's that going and maybe they end up working on fish passages pieces because they understand parts of this and have a little different perspective. So it, it really is if people can touch it and feel it they're definitely a bigger part of that.
1: Thank you so much to Mike Ruggles for sharing with us. You can connect with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks at fwp.mt.gov and learn more about the Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition at muscleshellwc.wixsite.com slash They're also on Facebook. You can connect to your local conservation district at macdnet.org. All of these links are on this episode's show notes. We encourage you to check out the other three podcast episodes, which hear from other voices in the Central Montana Plains region. Also check out lifeintheland.org, where you can find the film featuring these voices from Central Montana, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your own workshop or gathering. And thank you to Cassie Heron for production assistance in the field. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of several Plains tribes who interacted with and stewarded all elements of these lands for thousands of years and continue this stewardship today on and off reservation land. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more stories that create connections around a thriving planet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories4Action and Twitter at Stories4Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others and submit your own for us to share. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible with support from the Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Mine Lands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winnet Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Fork Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Whitted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal, and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and Chase Hibbert. Also a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to support future Life in the Land work, you may do so at lifeintheland.org. We greatly appreciate the support. Thank you all so much for listening.